Hi, this is Bill Allerton from Urban Tiger Radio, a project sponsored by Cybermouse Multimedia, bringing you free podcasts to download or listen to live online on your favourite podcast player, iTunes, Stitcher.com, SoundCloud, or just Google us and you will find us everywhere. Enjoy. This week's podcast is about a guy that I always considered it privileged to have known. He was a member of the Federation of Worker Writers and Community Publishers, would you believe? What a handle. His name was Arthur Thicket. No, you couldn't make it up, and I haven't made up Arthur or his story. Arthur was a very old-fashioned sort of guy. There's a lovely picture of him at the front of this podcast of him in December 1970. Now, I knew Arthur in the late, well, early 90s, I think, throughout the 90s probably, um, because I used to see him once a year at the Federation of Worker Writers and Community Publishers, which I always felt strange belonging to, but there you go. It was a very useful weekend away, learnt a lot, a lot of cross-fertilisation of ideas, writing styles, different people, some kooky some stealing all the fruit from the fruit bowl in the hotel. But it was a good time, and uh, we all loved it. And we all loved Arthur. Uh, Arthur was what you might call an old-fashioned sort of guy with his 70s sideburns, um, something of a, um, I don't know, English Elvis lookalike, really, I think you might say. And he had quite a stentorian voice, and when he read... He read very loudly and strongly, but everyone listened. And everyone liked Arthur, and everyone shook his hand on leaving. He was a nice guy. Um, I wouldn't have wanted to get the wrong side of him, but I think that would have been very difficult to do. He was a very, very genuine sort of man. I have his book here, which was done by Queen Spark Market Books. And it's called Arthur Thicket, Deckhand, West Pier. It's a period in Arthur's life when he worked at Brighton on the pier. So I will let Arthur tell his own story and here it is. The Sizzling Sixties. It was July 70, actually, but the 60s didn't start till halfway through and then swallowed half the 70s to make up for it. So my story starts, July 70, London. Bang in the middle of the 60s, time and space-wise. That month brought another twist to my wayward life. I was given a place as a full-time mature student at an adult residential college, generous grant and all. Coming to residence 2nd October, they said. A home, too, in a place like a stately old castle, discreetly tarted up with mod cons. It's the 60s, remember. Right there and then I chucked in my job as a station foreman on London's underground. London's mighty underground, which, in relatively recent time past, I'd even helped to dig on the Victoria Line. If you're in London, by the way, the tube train is the only way to travel. You can be out in the country in 20 minutes, snaking through the metropolis very guts like a giant tapeworm. But in July 70, I myself had had enough of that. 
before going into residence as a mature, some said overripe, student, I decided I needed another change, so I quit my seedy bedsit with no regrets, leaving it to disappear without trace into swarming Earl's Court, and moved to Brighton. Why not? On the first day there I found digs, on the second, a job, everything but the girl. Well, I was to find her, too, eventually, in my fashion. First the digs. I wanted them for a month or so, and they had to be pretty cheap. July was, of course, high season, so I left them all to it on the bed-and-breakfast beaten track and discovered this place two miles out of town at Ovingdean. The old Vienna Café was a quaintly charming place, more or less in the countryside, on the fringe of Ovingdean's mini-sprawl and opposite a busy farmyard. Setting its own field hard by the roadside, the Vienna Café's otherworldliness doubtless attracted stray tourists looking for high teas or even accommodation. The well-weathered timber structure, painted red but dark with age, was true Viennese in style, unless it was mock. I'm no expert. The old café was surrounded by a small cluster of wooden holiday chalets, which were actually nothing but diminutive wooden huts. Each contained little more than a double or single bed, but the places were clean enough, waterproof, freshly painted, white exterior, cream inside. I took a single chalet named Tyrrell. It housed a three-quarter bed and was cheap, almost ridiculously so. The place was owned and run by a suitably quaint old lady who really was Viennese. Eccentric but kindly and such low prices. She managed somehow. She had one permanent resident named Hambrum, a retired man in his mid-sixties who had his own separate room in the cafe itself and who tended to watch out for her interests. Two or three yards from the huts, chickens scratched and ducks waddled. In the far corner of the unkempt green surrounds, a couple of goats on long tethers ate whatever was going. Sweet and sour smells constantly wafted over the place from the ever-bustling farmyard across the mucky country road. On my second day in Brighton, I got myself this job on the West Pier. Deckhand. Well, fair enough, I suppose. Piers have decks as well as ships, although they only have one, usually plus a few bits and pieces, so I started in next morning at eight o'clock. There were only two deckies, a regular old hand who was in charge, and myself. The regular, Barney, sported a sailor hat and wore something vaguely resembling a uniform and did a variety of jobs, anything and everything, on the spot maintenance of the well-worn structure from one end to the other. His duties also included keeping an eye on me, but I did my job, so he never really bothered me. It was a funny sort of job that we both had, really, but he didn't have a terrific sense of humour and only occasionally managed a tight grin. To be fair, he was kept pretty busy poking and prodding and bashing the old pier with a variety of heavy tools. Barney was often to be found, spanner in hand, clinging perilously onto the structures underneath the deck, climbing sideways like some giant crab. The big boss chased him far more than he did me, so all in all, 
I suppose Barney did not have a lot to laugh about. Yes, we did have a proper boss, the peer manager, this white-collar bloke about fifty, all gut and pomp, who came over two or three times a day from the hotel opposite. The management there owned the pier. This guy just came and went and didn't stay around enough to bother us, well, me anyway, too much, which was just as well because on occasions, like all bosses, he could be a pig. My first job in the morning was to hose down the shore end of the pier, the scruffy flotsam and jetsam candy floss end. I'd complete this task a few minutes before half eight when the pier was opened up to the early strollers. Next, I would put up the big flags, eight in all. The little flags strung in rows stayed up constantly. The big flags came down overnight for preservation. They also came down during daylight hours if the weather became extreme. A rare thing, that summer. Putting the flags up was the most exciting thing I did all day, officially, that is. Hoisting a flag is easy enough. It's all done at the base of the flagpole. You tie the flag right way up onto one rope, pull the other, round go the pulleys and up goes the flag. Secure the rope and that's that. But the base of the flagpoles were not on the deck. They were way up on top of the concert hall or the towers, so he had to climb first to the top of the concert hall, then right across the top, sticking up four flags one by one, finally climbing down the other end. Then it was up the towers, and trickiest part, negotiating plank catwalks. After the first few days, when, quite frankly, I had the wind up, it came easy, and I thoroughly enjoyed climbing around with the early sun on my shirtless back, taking in the view from the high points as I flew the flags. At dusk I took them all down again. The job did entail long hours, showing off a bit if one or two youngish females were around. After hoisting the flags in the morning, I'd clean up the rest of the deck, working my way to the sea end from where I'd finished my hosing down. Although this covered a lot of deck, it was a slow and easy and lazy sort of job. Away from the shore end, the deck planks are laid slightly apart, the resulting slots being about three-eighths of an inch wide, so armed with a slim, handled piece of wood, rather like a wooden three-foot rule, but longer, I pushed the deck flotsam through the gaps and into the sea, or where there would be sea in due course. Barney always helped me with this job for half an hour, or longer if he could get away with it, giving me a hand, he would say. I soon realised he was giving himself a break by doing a bit of official skiving away from more onerous jobs awaiting his pleasure. Before lunch I'd do what was normally my hardest task of the day, sweeping out the concert hall ready for the afternoon show. There was a bit of a drag, and took me the best part of an hour, after which... At half twelve, I had my lunch break, one hour unpaid. I needed that hour, though, because although hardly any of my work was really heavy or hard, my hours were long. Eight in the morning till nine or ten at night, six days a week, Sundays off, though I worked one or two of those as well. Weekday afternoons were usually easy. I'd do all manner of jobs, a bit more deck prodding, and if I could, a bit of hiding and skiving. I only skived if I knew that there was little more on for a while than pushing Kit-Kat wrappers through the deck to the fishers. Occasionally, my lazy afternoon deck prodding intrigued others who were even less gamefully occupied. 
Hello there, friend, what are you doing? Jolted and a little peeved, I turned to take in this slightly disreputable-looking chap slumped on a wooden bench beneath the windbreak. He was on his own. Arthur, isn't it? Remember me? Uh, uh, yes, I said. Yes, I think I do. Didn't we uh, have a drink somewhere? Chatfields, he said promptly, naming one of Brighton's seamiest pubs. A few weeks ago, we had quite a session. You was living in London then, foreman or something. What are you doing now? I told him, at the same time trying to focus in on the man and the night at Chatfields. Yes, Glenn was his name. We'd had a good session. He'd bought the first drinks, I'd bought the rest. Hmm. He wasn't working, whilst I was doing reasonably well. Off-duty days, I'd sometimes do Brighton, using my quarter-fare concession card, catching the after-closing train back to London. With his unique style of blarney, Glenn was a rare mixture, half Liverpool Irish, half Lancastrian, and a dash of the jock thrown in. A fascinating character, and one of nature's nomads. He was forty-ish. In his younger days, he'd been a seaman out of Liverpool, after which, and after Lord knows what ups and downs, he drifted easily down to Brighton, as wanderers not infrequently do. He often slept rough in summer, and he was obviously doing that now. Overdressed for the weather, in a worn jacket and trousers, he nonetheless kept himself clean. His head rested on a solid-looking rucksack. Sleep on the front these warm, muggy nights, he said. Finish off with an extra hour up here. Kip under the pier, if it rains. Well, to each his own, I thought, while chatting and keeping one eye out for Barney. Glenn, I recall from that night, was something of a poet. He'd recited some of his own stuff from memory in his peculiar lilt, and for my money it wasn't bad. Started it at sea, I gathered. I had to go off and do a bit more, leaving him to it. I offered him two bob. He took it. He hadn't asked. Thanks, he said, and thanks for the extra couple you bought that night. He'd remembered then. It didn't matter. Fumbling in his jacket pocket, he produced a sheet of broad-lined paper. Here, take this. Yes, keep it. Read it later. See you sometime. Later, I read in his pleasing artistic hand. Placed the cloak of wisdom around my shoulder, and with it placed the tassels of knowledge on my head. And in the coldest night of snow, or even blizzard, I shall be warm with honour, alas, although I am parted from a bed. Glen Connolly. I turned the page over. There was another poem of a more personal nature about a dearly remembered child, his own daughter perhaps. Most afternoons I'd spend some little time creating empties in the concert hall bar and then transporting these, plus full crates and other goods, up and down the pier on an electric trolley. Once I carelessly crashed the trolley when taking a shortcut through too narrow a gap in the pier windbreak which ran the length of the pier. The truck was four feet wide, the gap three foot eleven. Metres hadn't been invented then. I should have put my whiskers through it first, only I didn't have any. The truck still went, crab-like. I managed with it that day and the next by keeping left hand down hard all the time. 
After that, Barney fixed it without realising, so far as I know, that I'd knocked its skew whiff. The main event most afternoons or early evenings was, so far as I was concerned, the fiddle. Not one of the music variety. Most days at this time I'd contrived to spend 30 or 40 minutes on it. So what was the fiddle, then? Well, as every self-respecting working-class person knows, all jobs have a fiddle, if you can find it. Actually, I didn't discover this one for myself. After the first week, I was let in to the secret by Tom, an elderly fella. He'd once held Barney's job, but was now retired, though he occasionally did the odd hour or so casual when we were hard-pressed or when Barney wanted time off. Now, there are fiddles and fiddles. This one was almost respectable. I suppose it was more or less legal. Probably less. Anyway, you could hardly get done for it, and you were very unlikely even to get sacked for it, just warned not to waste time at it. So, our little racket then. It was fishing for money, a real gem of an operation. Pure poetry, almost. Piers, as you are aware, consist of planks firmly secured to superstructures with gaps between each plank, hence the easy way of cleaning the decks with prodders. We didn't have pollution in those carefree days, it was the 60s as I keep telling you. And of course, directly below the deck, it was all sea or stony beach or rather nearly all. Because not far off the shore end of the pier, a couple of solidly built machine huts were situated, just below the pier level, secured to the pier supports. They housed various mechanical and electrical things, as well as other unspeakable mysteries, alive or otherwise. The flat roofs of these structures were just below the pier planking, about eight or nine inches below. Now, imagine generations of carefree holidaymakers, sober or not, treading the smooth, well-worn pier planks, clutching coins and purses and turning out pockets, ready to spend at the crash of a one-armed bandit or the sight of oozing pink candy floss. And so, on top of the flat roofs, a load of coins had accumulated, a regular little gold mine. It's quite likely that slot machines have been located in that particular area at times I didn't know or care. I was only interested in the painstaking but ingenious method of recovering these coins. First, bear in mind that these rooftops were totally no-go areas, quite inaccessible to hand or arm, impossible to climb onto from below, only the insides of the huts were accessible from beneath the pier, and then to strictly authorised personnel. Then someone had invented the coin fisher. The device was simple to operate, easy to make, all you needed was a hacksaw blade, a bit of string and a small tin of grease. Break a small piece about one inch in length off one end of a hacksaw blade. This small piece will have a hole in it, as will the remaining longer length of blade. Tie each end of an approximately two foot length of string to each of the two holes. Now, complete with your tin of grease, you're ready to operate. Smear grease liberally over both sides of the small end bit. Get down on knees, peer through gaps in pier planking onto machine hut roof, 
and select coin. Drop bit down onto it. Using the length of the blade, which will be just long enough, press the little bit firmly onto the coin. Lift carefully and up will come the bit on the end of the string, with the coin stuck to it. Easy. Some coins may require one or two tries and a little manoeuvring, but overall the system works well. I soon acquired a coin fisher and operated it frequently and successfully. Whilst fishing for cash, I had to keep the public out of the way. After all, it was their money. But that was easy. I simply roped off with appropriate keep-out signs a 25-yard or so half-section of the pier above the huts. This action was legitimate because the planking above the machine huts had to be swept and then swilled. No prodding there. The management could not allow sundry jetson, except coins, to accumulate on hut roofs. That could have constituted a fire risk and a health hazard. So I would fish happily for coins on the roped-off section of the pier, first one half, then the other. I'd get in a good twenty minutes fishing on each side, also completing a rush sweeping and swilling job a few minutes each side. Late afternoons were big boss free, but I'd keep half an eye out anyway. Barney knew what I was up to and turned a blind eye so long as I didn't overdo it. He himself had done his share of fishing in times past, but he was rather above it now. The coins I fished up were anything from halfpennies to half-crowns, with, somewhat astonishingly, even a few of the new fifty-pence pieces. I managed two of these rare big fish. The half-crowns had recently gone out as legal tender, but the shops on the front took them without trouble. They probably finished up going to collectors. Five and ten-pence pieces were the bread-and-butter coins. I would haul in maybe forty pence each day. Useful in those days. The 50p peace strikes were boom days. Breakfast at the Old Vienna All too quickly, a daily routine was developing. Damn. No use booking it, though. It's the way of things, unless you're filthy rich. My day now began with breakfast at the Old Vienna Café, Ovingdean. Country setting... Animal noises off. And these morning meals were certainly not restrained or boring, lavishly served by Madame Proprietress herself, as much as you could eat. The breakfasts were traditionally English rather than Viennese. A relief. Continental breakfasts are rather scrappy if you're a manual worker. As I understood it, the Continental proletariat took two breakfasts in order to survive. However, the most interesting thing was... I did not eat alone. Invariably, I had two companions. One, old Hambram, oddly named, the retired permanent resident, an East of Suez ex-colonial type. The other, an 18-year-old youth named Ted, who worked on the farm across the road. The pair could not have been more different. Old Hambram, spick and span, collar and tie, daily telegraph at the slope, always seated before me. Ted, a northerner, very dark, always a little untidy, unshaven, usually straggled in after me. An intelligent but ill-educated and inexperienced young man, Ted was nonetheless well-informed and brashly overconfident. Youthfully charming in his way, he was also very bolshy. The old man, well-educated, decent enough, 
was of course a dyed-in-the-wool conservative, though not always illiberal. Illiberal or no, breakfast conversations were lively. At first I thought it was the old man, being the more subtle, who did all the baiting. Then I wondered if it wasn't 50-50. Maybe it just happened. But I suppose we all enjoyed it, though not hiding the fact that I was somewhat bolshy myself, albeit a little more sophisticated, I hope, than young Ted. I tended to referee. If it wasn't Vietnam, it was Ulster, or it was strikes, and that uppity young devil Arthur Scargill. At least the students were having a breather until October. A telegraph headline or radio news would set it off over the cornflakes and orange juice. Paisley, it's him them snatch squads should be putting in jail for a long time, not picking on a few poor unemployed bogsiders. That was Ted. They seemed to be well enough employed to me, digging up the pavements, taking over petrol stations to facilitate their Molotov cocktail factories. Hambram preferred the original term for petrol bomb. And the size of those barricades. Plenty of willing hard labour there, yet asked them to work constructively for pay and they'd sneak off and draw the doll. Totally negative attitude. There ain't no work there, Mr Ambram, and they've a right to defend themselves. Oh, is that what you call it? And so on. I'd be drawn in. Nasty business all round, but that Paisley really is a pro... I was going to say provocateur, but changed it to real stirrer. Another morning, it would be Vietnam. Yanks, they should get out. They're committed to getting out now. What are they bombing the north into the ground for, then? Nearly 25,000 million pounds of explosives dropped to date. Thousand pound of bombs for every minute the Americans have been in Vietnam. Even Hambrum's grey eyebrows lifted momentarily. They're trying to leave the south with some sort of stability. And all they are doing is flattening everything. But all too soon the proprietress would come in with a solid-looking sandwich pack for Ted just for morning break. He had an insatiable appetite, which she positively encouraged. She'd chide us for arguing, tell Ted to take care, he had a tough job, and begin to make ready for the more leisured guests' breakfast. I'd rush out to catch the 737 bus at the bottom of Ainsworth Avenue for the meandering journey into Brighton, sitting on the top deck, pondering over the imposing Rodine School. For snobs? dreamily gazing into the hazy, flat blue sea as the morning warmed up. So the days passed on quickly, pleasant enough mostly, but long and tiring. Swilling decks, flags up, sweep, prod, fetch and carry sweep, prod, flags, down, bus, home. Vienna Café was my home address. Illicit coin fishing apart, it was all bed and work. Well, not quite all. Saturday night and Sunday morning. Saturday nights I would drive to get away early, 9pm. As I mentioned before, most Sundays I'd have off. This being so, most Saturdays I'd have a good old pub crawl. I'd earned it. A quick change and clean up on the job and I'd sail forth with bells on. After brief calls here and there, perhaps Chatfields and the ship, I'd finish up at the Belvedere, right on the seafront under the high promenade. Frankly, it was a somewhat sleazy place. 
though it was my usual destination, Saturday nights. This particular evening, after finding a corner to myself, I sat back and with the aid of the old white logic beginning to percolate, I philosophised. First, the indulgence of playing back a few vivid reels of my life, and what a life. Wars, strange lands, dramas and dramas within dramas. Love, plenty of that, though never enough. My story, eventful and dramatic in the extreme at times, though I did not plan it that way at all, nor at the time did I see it that way. As it unfolded, it was all just natural. I went through it all, not unscathed, but for a long time anyway, with a kind of innocence, the innocence of false consciousness, perhaps. My story was all just natural, until I began to wonder. World War Two had ambushed us all, then struck at random. Many it hardly affected. Some, whatever they experienced, were barely touched. Some, it transformed totally. For me, the war and a series of personal dramas it wrought upon me shattered my otherwise bland enough life forever. It had the further effect of shoving me into a flood of graphic events, both personal and climactic. This state then continued to feed upon itself, potentially dangerous and dehumanising me, though I was not aware of this in 1970, or for some time afterwards. But I had begun to wonder, and I had begun to write. By 1967, my writing had started to take some shape, and amongst the junk I now had two or three fully completed short stories, for what they were worth. I tried anything, but mostly a mixture in varying degrees of truth and fiction, with truth the largest element. I bought myself another drink, and started a new chapter. My Story Instant by instant, I'm living a story here tonight, making a story by my actions, but writing is also a form of action. What I'm doing, really, always, whether I'm writing or just being and doing, all the time, I'm striving to complete my story. No, wait, that's not so, that's wrong. This I, my I, I am but a fragment and my story, however strange, however apparently mine, is not mine. Whatever choices I'm seemingly making now, I've only to look back to realise that I did not invent my story to date. I've very little to do with its construction and incident, very little. Largely, it just happened to me. Still, I do strive. There is an input, however minute. What am I doing, then? What am I doing all the time? I suppose my story is a fragment of the history of the human race. I'm not even doing it. I'm a tiny part of our story. Betty sat herself down at my table. Belvedere Betty. I bought her a drink and another for me. I'd met her before. I was in love with her, but it was hopeless. 
For the moment, though, I was preoccupied. I had a plan, an original idea. I could start up a banana farm. No one else would have one. I would create, by artificial means, all the conditions necessary. They grow bananas at Kew, don't they? Well, I could grow them. After glancing again at the bunch of bananas on the bar and wondering what they were doing there, I sat down with the drinks. I'm thinking about starting a banana farm. How do you spell banana? I asked Betty. You're pissed, she said. No, just on way. Same thing. It's not. Tis. Thanks anyway. Have you seen Bertie? Bertie was her boyfriend. Didn't you come in with him? Her? Yes, but she's disappeared. Gone the loo, don't worry. He'll, She'll come back. I am worried. She might have gone off with someone else. Excusing herself, Betty went to the loo, and suddenly Bertie materialised at my table. I got her a drink before she asked, and we talked a kind of politics for a while. I found Bertie interesting to talk to, even though she was my rival for the attentions of blonde-haired Betty. I couldn't talk to Betty that way, but then you couldn't talk to most people seriously about political and social matters. Sad, but true, most people, whatever their potential, were lazy that way. Really, they didn't want to think seriously. Oh well, Bertie and I, in social terms, had the same old loves and hates. Rivals? No, I didn't have a look in. I didn't resent Bertie at all. I just found it strange that Betty was attracted to her and not to me. I never ceased to wonder, but so be it. You can't win them all. Not that I'd ever tried to. Funny affair theirs, though. Betty keen, Bertie casual, always the same. Still, it wasn't my affair to each their own. Yet on one plane, I always kept on wondering and always kept on the illusion knowing it to be an illusion, that I might yet win Betty, who, after quite some minutes, had returned. They started arguing, mildly, casually, and they both kept me in it. I refereed a bit, agreeing with them both in turn, though I didn't really know what they were on about, and soon I paid a necessary visit to the loo, observing in passing that the bananas had gone, though the bag was still there. Betty was on her own when I returned, you're a nice guy, she said. What she meant was that the booze made me philosophical, generous and magnanimous. I enjoyed the role. We talked about her. We talked about Bertie. She said she liked me a lot. The booze did most of the talking for us. Twice her hand fleetingly brushed my arm. I gave her 50p before she asked. The white logic contracted the time. She went off, saying she would see me again soon. Well, she always did. She gave Bertie at the bar the 50p. She always did that too. They left a few moments later, but not before I'd been joined by Jenny. Can I come in for a minute? She kind of sang it in a low Marlene Dietrich style. It was her thing. Hello. Well, you are in. At last. You're in demand. 
What do you mean? You know. I'm not in demand, not at all, unfortunately. Anyway, how have you been? I haven't seen you ages. Been away? Yes. In jail. Half cut or no, the remark still made me sit to attention for a moment. I looked at her. I'd known Jenny for six months or so now, Brighton being a regular watering hole for me, even when I'd lived in London and worked as a station foreman. It had only been two or three months since I'd last seen Jenny, yet she had changed noticeably. She seemed maybe harder, yet somehow more vulnerable. Her voice sounded different, a little more harsh, but a quiver, a tremor was also discernible. It was her second time inside then. Her first spell had only been about ten days. This time I gathered it was longer, and something had hurt her. I could tell. I could see it. I was sorry. I think she'd told me what her first visit had been about, but I'd been drunk at the time and had not remembered. I won't ask anything now, I thought. I'll commiserate. Let her say anything she may want to say, but otherwise I'll let it go. She was talking. I was listening. It was after eleven, but I'd managed to obtain last drinks and get a grip. I could hold it well through conscious effort. I was listening and thinking, Jenny, more sinned against than sinning. Jenny, Betty and Bertie, all of them, yes. And old Glenn, the poet who slept on or under the pier. I'd seen him turn up here when he'd had a few bob in his pocket. The underdogs pub. Rough justice, no justice, wasn't them. I was off onto my old tack, but it was rough justice. Life. Can I come back with you? Oh, go on. She kept on at me, kept on asking me. I kept on making excuses. I worked long hours. I was tired. I just wanted to sleep. That was all she wanted to do, she said. But she just didn't want to be alone tonight. I believed her. Trouble is, you see, I'm not supposed to have overnight visitors. It might have been true or not, I didn't know. But it made no impression at all on Jenny. I didn't want her to come back to the chalet with me, though. If only it had been Betty. Well, that's life. Jenny I simply regarded as an occasional drinking companion, and up till tonight it seemed to have been the same with her. But now, no one will know. Please, let me come back with you tonight. I couldn't say no, point blank, and I'd run out of excuses. It's just, I'd, I don't want to be alone tonight. It was almost an apology. She knew she'd won. I felt sure that her desire not to be alone tonight had a lot to do with her second spell inside. Well, we must be very quiet going in then. Of course we will. We were. Leaving the last bus to Ovingdean at the corner, we quietly moved into the old cafe grounds, merging with the shadows. Somewhere on the darker side an animal moved, one of the goats. We stifled a nervous giggle. One or two chalet lights showed, but all was quiet. Quickly we were indoors with curtains drawn, talking low as we undressed casually. The bed was a three-quarter, with plenty of room. A quick peck, good night, as the alcoholic haze closed in, and we were off to sleep, holding hands. Outside, 
The crescent moon drifted lazily through wispy white cloud. The goat turned in. Over on the farm, a dog howled fitfully. We heard it not. We didn't hear the cock crow or the milkman. Quarter to seven, suddenly wide awake. Didn't feel too bad. We'd better get up soon, I thought. I looked at Jenny. She still slept. Dark Jenny. Tousled hair. Features calm, breathing quietly. Moving closer, I gently put my hand on her, her bare arm. Murmuring unintelligibly, she moved my way slightly. Casually, confidently, gently, I put my arm around her. Then suddenly, wide awake, she screamed right out of the blue. What, what the hell's wrong with her? She'll bring the whole bloody camp down on us. For God's sake, shut up, I uttered, nonplussed. She screamed again. Shut up, I yelled sharply. You wake them all. What the heck's the matter? She turned a bemused gaze at me. Though troubled, she seemed calmer. I almost laughed, but not quite. The situation was pure farce, but still worrying. I knew that whatever was upsetting her, it wasn't me. As yet she hadn't spoken. Please be quiet, I said. I'm not touching you. I know. It's all right now. Sorry. It's not you. She reached out. We held hands a moment. It wasn't difficult for me to imagine things that may have been troubling her as she awoke, and had similar trouble myself, bad at times. I didn't pursue the matter. Outside, everything remained quiet. Saturday night and Sunday morning. They're all hung over, I suggested. Else they're all at it, and <laughs> we both giggled. Best get moving now, though. Fancy a good breakfast? Twenty minutes later, in the back of a near-empty bus, we laughed all the way to town, where we soon found an early cafe and had a damn good breakfast. Still laughing. Here they come. August bank holiday, a thronging West Pier. Out of a brilliant, clear blue sky they came, streaking past in vivid red silence, followed next instant by a massive roar. The red arrows. First, in a diamond wedge, tight as a fist, they looped, then line ahead they looped again, flashing a few dozen feet over our pier before buzzing the palace pier. After such preliminaries, they really got going. Two clever devils broke away and did breathtaking and obviously dangerous feats, while the other seven played above, all now using multicoloured smoke trails. Overall, a fantastic spectacle. Soon the most hair-raising stunt of the clever devil duo unfolded. One of the pair flew east beyond the palace pier, whilst the other went away west, away from our overcrowded pleasure planks. Then, simultaneously, they both executed a tight U-turn and set course, one for our West Pier, the other for the Palace Pier, losing height as they approached. Each zoomed a score or so feet above their respective piers, still sharply losing height, thus heading at the water and pointed directly at each other. Then, Almost zero feet above the water, they levelled off, still heading directly at each other over that stretch of water between the two piers. At the last possible instant, they banked sideways, one right, one left, 
thus flashing their underbellies by each other, wingtips almost skimming the water. I distinctly recall leaning on the pier rail I was working, looking down at the two planes executing this manoeuvre, more than once streaming fabulous multicoloured smoke. Another trick was for the whole nine line ahead to zoom between the two most prominent high-rise buildings, the Metropole and Grand, on the seafront. As I recall it, a tragic sequel to this display made it stand out as all the more spectacular. Not so very many months after doing their Brighton high summer show, the Red Arrows, while putting on another display elsewhere, were involved in a serious crash into spectators, among whom fatalities occurred. The powers that be decided that, henceforth, for reasons of public safety, the altitude level of the Red Arrow stunts had to be raised. Never again, after August 70, was one able to look down from the Brighton piers at the top two Red Arrows in action, or look down from one's hotel window, assuming one had pots of cash, at all nine red devils flashing and roaring past under one's nose. But after watching that breathtaking display, I had work to do, in plenty. I'd already had a hard morning, August Bank Holiday being, of course, an exceptional day on the pier, the last hazy, crazy day proper of the silly season. People went a bit hysterical as they realised that in a couple or so days there would be an hour in the month again, then the kids to be pilloried back to school, and in no time at all they would be taking the hour back off them, thus officially ending the long, warm days, leaving the fog and cold and wet leaves to take over outdoors. So all day long, a hot, mad mob trod the trembling pier planks. No time for coin fishing today. Still, they might oblige me with a bit of quick coin fish restocking on top of the machine hut roofs. Meanwhile, I got stuck in, working on the concert hall for the afternoon show. Finish off the sweeping up, then whistle up and down the rows, arranging the skew-whiff chairs more or less neatly. A lonely task in the rather austere concrete-floored auditorium hearing the cheerful mob outside. Dreaming a bit, perhaps, to alleviate the boredom. I first pondered over the red arrows. Ambivalence. How could I be churlish at them for doing something so well? But were they not, in fact, part of the war machine? War. It condoned everything on your side. It's 25 years since that war, the war they told us that was the war to end wars. It was the second war to end wars, because obviously the first one didn't. And the second one didn't either. But those of us who were very young then, we believed it, many of us anyway. We believed it because we were young, naive, undereducated, but we also believed it because many people did mean it. Many people, regardless of rank or status, who were involved in that war, intended to make it the war to end wars. However, by 1951, I was slogging up and down hills on a strange and rugged Asian peninsula that nobody had ever heard of.
until it was split asunder by another war. I froze in hillside trenches as a Siberian-style winter reigned over all, trembled behind paddy buns, bisecting abandoned rice fields as hot metal hissed overhead, squirmed as the shells roared in and vicious splinters snarled about my ears. I saw the clinging yellow napalm oozing down enemy hills, watched our men shooting at civilians who got in the way, occasionally wondered what I was doing in this godforsaken place. That was the Korean Peninsula, 1951-52. to 52. But on the rest, leaves flew over us to Japan, and the girls, and the beer, or the beer and the girls, if you prefer. And I stood in Hiroshima, the new Hiroshima, and saw what was left of the old, the dome, the shadow of the evaporated man eternally etched into the bridge, and the scar, a scar like no other, like twisted, knotted corn, on the back of a girl in a bar. Sweep, 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 I floated back to the present. The boring old concert hall sweep, the stiff bristles harsh scrunch scrunch over the rough concrete floor, going right through me, and the dust. I put water down, opened the windows. Sweeping again I felt better, seeing and hearing the happy milling throng, listening to the speaker music, the latest Beatles vying with the old Lambeth walk. Young and waltzing by, mostly young now that, as well as the holidays, schools and colleges were out. Young and old, waltzing by, mostly young now that, as well as the holidays, the schools and colleges were out. All types, kiss-me-quick hats and miniskirts, mingling with the more recently established egalitarian genes of student types, and the more discerning young women, Oxford Street assistants and art students, perhaps. They drifted along elegantly in the very latest, the maxi-skirt. Now a colourful group caught my eye. The girls in beads and, I figured, caftans, accompanied by wild-looking youths in weird shirts and beads and anything else they could hang on themselves, topped up with truly massive shocks of hair. And was that pot they were smoking? Flower power, or something. I noticed a few older people shaking their heads as the group passed, a little circus unto themselves. I grinned to myself. They were harmless enough, even though some of their elders certainly did not approve. Harmless, no. That wasn't really the word. The young these days might appear frivolous, way out, but many of them, workers and students, as well as, fair to say, some older people were trying to stop a war. They poured into Grosvenor Square, banners flying, a human tide swamping over the green, swelling into every corner, chanting, chanting, Ho, Ho, Ho Chi Minh! The front ranks closed, nose to nose with the massed police lines. Above the eagles at the embassy windows, faces peered, Ho, Ho, Ho Chi Minh! We will fight and we will win! The chanting rose to a crescendo, then suddenly stopped. 
a moment of near silence, almost unbearable, then to the sound of thin cheers turning into a deepening, growling roar, the first banner poles flew. The sound became a menacing howl. The tightly packed mob behind burst through their own front ranks. Police and crowd fused in a swaying, battling mass. Helmets flew. The mob were breaking through. Poles, smoke bombs, sundry missiles rained in on police and embassy. Windows shattered. The faces above grew anxious. The howl became a triumphant snarl. Then the mounted police charged. They skirmished across the green. For them, ideal terrain. Riders wielding their massive truncheons. Demonstrators scattered, went down. The mob was in frenzied retreat. The foot police made darting forays, arresting indiscriminately and not gently. Running fights developed everywhere. The chanting howl broke down into shouting and screaming. A mess of bedraggled banners, branches, earth clods and helmets appeared, strewn across the green, gardens and roadways. Clothing hung among the lower branches of trees. Sirens wailed. Ambulances pushed through. Demonstrators, struggling and yelling, were led, shoved or thrown into police buses. Watching from what was at first the relative safety of the middle ranks on the green, I saw the horses charge my way. As the front line developed around me, I beat a hasty retreat. Eventually, in an apparently safe corner of the square by South Audsley Street, I turned again to gawp, but a police raiding party suddenly materialised there and dragged another dozen of us off to add to the collection. What did you do in the great sixties, Daddy? Well, son, I was arrested in the first sixty-eight battle of Grosvenor Square. What were you doing, Daddy? I was running away. Sweep, sweep, back to the pier again. Finishing off, I fell to wondering if I might catch a glimpse of the really stunning red-headed actress who, with the others, should now be somewhere backstage, making ready, laughing, such a dazzling smile. I went outside, glad to breathe fresh air. Three or four tangled deck chairs formed an untidy mess blocking a door. Not my job. One feller in uniform with a bulging leather money bag did the chairs all day and nothing else. I bet he had a good little racket going. But someone was trying to get out. I shifted the deck chairs and out she came. Flaming red hair, red dress, cleavage but not overdone, flamboyant but warm and human, and the smile just for me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, no trouble at all, I stammered manfully, caught in the beam full flood. When I had recovered and moved on and glanced back unobtrusively, I saw three or four of them, actors and actresses. They were standing outside the stage door, as they were wont to do just before an afternoon show, having a little air and a smoke and a chat. But I saw only one. A born actress. She enjoyed, even needed to be seen, but she was radiant. She gave. My August bank holiday was made, but not over, not by any means. 
After rushing up extra booze supplies and whatever on the electric trolley, I had to remove, empty and replace the large wire rubbish containers, using the trolley to make work easier. Normally it wasn't a terribly dirty job, but today wasn't normal. Completing the task and relieved to get away from the lazy wasps and stale pink ice cream flecks, I went off to give myself an extra good hand wash and swill. But I didn't make it to the gents. Instead, a harassed Barney, hot, sweating, sailor hat askew, collared me for another job. Yeah, yeah, right away, now, now, pronto, behind the bar. Whereon I presented myself there and then and pronto to whomever was running things behind the concert hall bar. I don't think anybody was. Chaos reigned there. The evening show was underway with the auditorium rearranged and the great British public sitting around tables, swilling back beer, while laughing at lurid jokes and everything else, funny or otherwise. It was an awesome sight. And suddenly my job was to help keep the GBP happily supplied with booze on a hot Brighton August bank holiday evening. A daunting prospect. It was all waiter service. They wheeled in constantly with trays, first disgorging their empty glasses and small bottles, next picking out from the crates the few full small bottles they required before cramming their trays full with all half-pint-sized glasses brimming with bitter. No pints, too awkward. The GBP simply bought it by the trayload. One man was filling the bitter glasses as well as trying to cope with shoving empty bottles into crates. A woman was collecting, washing and restacking the glasses. She was flying. A teetotaler would be drunk on the odour. There were none. Barney sent. Great, the man said. Just get down there on that tap and fill glasses. Just keep on filling and filling. Right, I replied. Just got to wash me hands first, though. Been empty and rubbish, see, where's... Don't mind that. Wash them in the beer. He meant it. That shook me a bit, but what can I do? Half turning, I caught the woman's eye. Mary. I knew her by sight. She grinned at me in mid-flight, at the same time nodding frantically at me to get on with it. The message was clear. I started right in, filling. Fast. At least I thought I was fast. It was dead easy. A simple mobile tap, not a pole job. I just moved glass to glass, turning the tap on and off, also allowing an instant for froth. No good, you're not fast enough. Two minutes later and the man was behind me. Mary, check over here. Mary took over here without even changing flight. I hovered. Yeah, does it like this, see, son? Mary would have been about fifty if she'd let time catch up with her. I gaped. She certainly filled much faster than I did. She just lined the glasses in rows into a solid phalanx, six by six, turned the tap on full and filled the lot at one go, moving along non-stop, no froth, paws, beer, going in the glasses and everywhere else, no drip tray. In no time, every glass was brimful and booze flooding everywhere. Well, I could have done that, I suppose. No second chance, though. Oh, well, a bit sheepish, I thought. I'll go and find Barney, see what he's doing. But fill them crates we empties, then bring back them full crates over there, over here, then shift them filled empty crates over there to where the full ends was. The man was behind me again. 
When you've done that, come with me down the tap room. There's kegs to shift. There was kegs to shift. I also noticed that a skinny kid about 14 had been dragged in to do the washing up. The GBP excelled themselves that night, but in the second between rounds I managed to exchange an odd few words with perpetual motion Mary. She started in at seven in the morning, to my eight, finished maybe half an hour earlier than me, but no Sundays off. In fact, no days off at all. She did a cleaning job early, then shared a pier stall with her husband. They alternated. He also did other jobs. We're all the same here, love. We work like mad all summer, see, non-stop, no time off. Then come October, we goes off on a long holiday in Spain. Then we comes back and gets a winter job. The lucky ones, that is. And then we does it all over again. It was a way of life for them, I realised. They made some money, not that much, and worked all hours under the sun for it. Mary, a good scout. Not much on her, tough as nails but ageing prematurely, I figured, like a lot of them, Spain or no. Ten o'clock at last. I was almost on my knees. But I'm charging off to the Belvedere right now, regardless, and if I am a bit late in the morning, well, sod it. About mid-September 1970, I left Brighton. After packing in my job on the West Pier and bidding farewell to Madame and the old Vienna Cafe and the goats and the ducks and all that, I returned to London for a brief spell, before duly taking up my place at the New Battle Abbey Adult Residential College in Scotland. And a grand place it was too. So began a new way of life. I quickly discovered that my attitude to higher education was, to say the least, ambivalent. Perhaps after 43 years as one of us, I was bound to find even the custom-designed academia for mature students somewhat constraining. It was still them. I wrestled uneasily within my place, finally leaving under a cloud, and returned for almost a year to my job as foreman on the London Underground. Later, I did a complete full-time degree course in humanities, and topped it up with a certificate in teaching at London University. For a short while I taught in London's inner suburbs. At first I managed well in the adolescent jungle before an accident caused me to lose confidence in my ability to teach. The transformation was quite shattering, and I left the profession for health reasons, probably to return in a year. But I knew I would never return. Taking up a job in a warehouse, I found that the effort of manual work gradually restored my morale and general confidence. After a while, I even became acting charge hand, but the early 80s recession arrived and nearly 50% of the staff, including myself, were made redundant, with a small payment. At that stage, I returned to Brighton. My plan was to live cheaply and write as much as possible but also to work at anything I could get, for most of the time. But there was almost no work around. Those days had gone. There was some casual paid work, but that was all. And they were beginning to say I was too old. 
I found myself doing voluntary work, mainly associated with private sector housing conditions, trying in varying ways to improve the rented tenant's lot. It was a kind of black hole out of which one might never emerge, and within which as much unpaid work loomed ahead as one was prepared to tackle. I managed to write quite a bit from within the hole. I did escape the black hole in the end, only to find Queen Spark books, from which there is no escape. But I am happy there with the inmates, having found my spiritual home at last. The greatest lesson of all that I have learned in my now quite long and varied life, which has included too much war in one place or another, is utterly simple and can be encapsulated neatly in that great 60s slogan, Make love, not war. Here I mean the term love, to be taken in its broadest and truest sense, but if someone would like to take it another way, well, that's all right too, because there surely cannot be anything too ambiguous about the term. In conclusion, I wish to mention all my Queen Spark companions for the friendly and selfless way they keep Queen Spark going. With particular thanks to Carol, Mike, Chris and Wilbur for working on this book. Also thanks to Nick and the Manuscript Group. Not forgetting, finally, my family. My good friends in Kent and Crawley and Dylan and the Crescent Crowd. Arthur Thicket, Brighton, 1993. There's a postscript from Arthur. The actual date of the Red Arrow's display was August the 7th, 1970. Taking that into account, the events depicted here are true. The characters are real people, though their names have been changed. Arthur Thicket, Brighton, 1993. Queen's Park Books is a community writing and publishing group based in Brighton. We believe that everyone has a history and that anyone who wants to can be a writer. Our aim is to encourage and publish writing by people who do not normally get into print. Queen's Park is not a commercial company. We have a part-time paid worker, but most of us are volunteers who work together to write and produce books, gaining and sharing skills and confidence as we go. We have several active writing groups in Brighton and Hove. Our manuscripts group reads all manuscripts that are sent to us and sets up bookmaking groups for those we are able to publish. All groups run on a cooperative basis. If you would like to find out more or get involved, write to Queenspark Books, the Brighton Media Centre, 11 Jew Street, Brighton, BN1, 1UT. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed Arthur Thicket's life story, or part of his life story. I am proud to have known Arthur. He was a good, good man, and uh, very enjoyable company. And you could hear him from every point of the room. <laughs> a lovely man. You've just been listening to another excellent podcast from Urban Tiger Radio, sponsored by Cybermouse Multimedia. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, don't forget to click the little heart button on your way out and let everyone else know that you like it. So, once again, that's a goodbye from me and a from now. Bye.